The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. SJP Wrestling Podcast. Episode 10, bloody hell. I thought I'd run out of ideas after three weeks, if I'm honest. Uh, my name is Sai, I am your host, and I want to say thank you yet again for pressing play, download, however which way you do it. And I, I genuinely mean that as well. Please don't think at any stage when I say thank you for listening that it's a cliche or I'm just running off a checklist on my show intro or anything like that. There is so many wrestling podcasts out there, thousands and thousands and thousands, and people take the time to listen to what I have to say and listen to my little show. It means, genuinely, it means the world to me. So thank you so, so much for everyone who does listen. Um, And of course, if you enjoy the show, please tell your friends. (laughs) Um, Coming up on today's episode, uh, we welcome back Comrade Newton of ChopsKicksAndNearFours.com. As we go back 23 years to discuss WCW's Halloween Havoc 1997 event. Um, I think it's very much a snippet of WCW as a company in a three-hour show with some wonderful matches on the undercard and a god-awful main event. But you'll hear all about that uh, when we get to our main topic and our main discussion with Conrad. Um, Coming up on future weeks, just so you're aware of uh, what's upcoming on the SJP Wrestling Podcast... Um, at some stage in the very, very near future, we will be looking back on Royal Rumble 1992, and I will be attempting to convince a self-proclaimed Ric Flair hater that Ric Flair does deserve to be counted as one of the greatest of all time. Um, we will also be looking back on Halloween Havoc 1993, spin the wheel, make the deal, and all that nonsense. Um, we have a Road Warriors tribute episode upcoming very soon the sad passing of road warrior animal recently um and of course you know both of those guys dying very young but still one of the greatest tag teams of all time really really looking forward to bringing you our road warriors legion of doom tribute episode and being november i'm sure we'll be uh looking back at survivor series events and other goings on from the month of november in wrestling's past and of course all the usual interviews um yet again i thank you so so much for taking the time to listen to the show Please get in touch with any ideas or feedback or comments um, or any questions for any of the upcoming topics. Uh, You can contact me at SJPWords on Twitter. Uh, You can contact the show um, at SJPWrestlingPod on Facebook or Twitter. And please do. Please take the time to reach out, say hi, let me know what you think is going well with the show, what needs to improve. Any positive feedback is always welcome. Um, And I will try and do my best to make the show as great as I possibly can for everyone who's willing to listen. Um, With that said, let's go on to our main topic right now. Welcoming back Conrad Newton. Uh, Always a fantastic guest. Always a brilliant person to talk wrestling with. Um, We go back 23 years and we take a look at Halloween Havoc 1997. 
I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. My friend, Comrade Newton, over the moon to have you back, mate. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Um, yeah, um, how are you, first of all? Yeah, yeah, not too bad, fella, not too bad, you know. Still very much uh, living the lockdown life, I guess. Things are very much up in the air with, with that whole situation still, which is a, a sad state of affairs, but it gives us plenty of opportunity to go back and watch some crazy old WCW events, I guess. <laughs> yeah. How are things with you? How how's the lockdown affecting you now? Any improvement? Um, it's a bit better, yeah. So in Birmingham, so a bit kind of verging into that kind of tier three territory. But at the minute, it's not too kind of it's not too bad. Pretty much business as normal, but with a bit with the normal safety precautions that we've been taking since March or April. Yeah, I get you. I get you. Yeah, hopefully they will figure something out and we'll start seeing a change or an end to this sooner rather than later, but I think it's going to rumble on for a while, which is a shame, isn't it? <laughs> but there we go. Um, okay, I mean, shall we Shall we just get on to this week's topic then? I mean, we, uh, we re-watched Halloween Havoc 1997, as it was 23 years ago this week. That show was first broadcast on pay-per-view. Um, initially, what were your overall first thoughts? Um, I kind of went into it kind of a little bit kind of apprehensive because obviously um, my first appearance on this show we talked about uh, WrestleMania 5 and uh, Clash of Champions, um, the Raging Cajun yeah. and that was kind of very much, it was kind of a mixed bag and like WCW was kind of better in terms of work rate and um, you kind of see the kind of like the contrast between like 1997 WCW and kind of 1989 um, WCW when it's like a re- like it's really kind of a shock. Um, yeah, I was like entertained. Um, this is like obviously peak NWO um, like um, period, and kind of they really did well, kind of having that involved like throughout the show with their um, with Hulk Hogan, like whether he's going to show up and the like. Uh, it was just really well put together as well. Lit um, the card placement for some matches could have been a little bit better, but. I think that's just more personal, um, more of a personal graph than anything. But yeah, it's a really good show. I enjoyed it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I mean, this is the first time. I mean, you say you, before we started, uh, we pressed the record button. You said that um, you've seen the Mysterio Guerrero match previously, but the rest of the card was new to you. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I've seen this event in many, many years. So even though I've seen it before, there's plenty there that I couldn't remember. And when it started flooding back, it to me it really shows. It, it's almost taking like a snippet of WCW um, and sort of showing the world what this company was like. You had some incredible, incredible highs, but you also had some incredible lows and some absolute dross in certain segments that you just, even now, looking back with 2020 eyes on the product, you can't explain certain things. It was a very, very mixed bag of a company the whole time it ran, I found. But you're right, this this era was building up to Starcade 97, which I think is very much peak WCW, the whole NW angle, as you mentioned, and Sting um, coming back for Starcade 97 to face Hogan. Um, it's all building towards that event from Havoc via the um, World War Three pay-per-view the following month and then into Starcade in December. Um, it was a very mixed bag, I think, this event. Uh, there were so many high, high points, but there were some, again, that really confused the hell out of me. I mean, your 
you're a very big New Japan fan, aren't you? Just probably going by your Twitter and seeing the things you discuss online. You're, you're a big New Japan fan. You're very much into that product. How did you find seeing Gado actually wrestling? Is that the first time you've seen him, or especially in the American ring? Um, yeah, the first time I've seen him in an American ring, um, outside of like his normal tag team um, with uh, Jado, this was kind of like the first time I'd seen him wrestle singles, and he looked quite out of his element. I think he kind of works better as a booker or a tag team rep, uh, guy rather than a singles competitor, because he just looked really lost here. Yeah, I, I was really surprised when he when he popped up on the show. I mean, that's one of the things that I did not remember until it came up on my screen. And as soon as it popped up, and knowing your your love for New Japan, I thought straight away, I've got to ask you about that, because I, I completely forgotten the guy was even on the card. So that was something that you know straight away piqued my interest. Um, okay, so a little bit of a background for Havoc 97. Um, WCW at the time were on fire. They were absolutely just money, making money hand over fist, tearing away um, with success. Um, the... The event itself was held in the NGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, um, and 12,457 was the recorded attendance, with over 10,000 of those paid, which is a huge chunk of paying tickets, considering when we discussed um, the event in 89, there was very few people actually paid to be in the arena, Um, and previous WCW events as well, building up to 96, 97, you'd see 8,000, 9,000 people, but only two or 3,000 would have paid. So that amount, that percentage of paid customers is a huge, huge thing for WCW, especially where, looking at where they've come from. The gate was just shy of $300,000, which is, again, astronomical for, for WCW, um, building towards their biggest pay-per-view, I think, which was Starcade 97. Um, well, well over $3.5 million made on pay-per-view buy rates. I mean, the, the numbers here are just incredible for, for WCW. I think it's absolutely, you know, fa- fantastic insight as to where they were. But also, I believe you start to see issues on this card that start to lead to their downfall throughout 98 and especially into 99 when they just nosedive through the floor. Um, shall we start with the first match? Yeah, sounds like a plan, yeah. Okay, I was the opener on this show. We saw Yugi Nagata, accompanied by Sonny Ono, who, you know, had been around WCW for quite a while, um, wrestling the Ultimo Dragon. Um, I thought Nagata had some very, very stiff-looking kicks here. It was a very hard-hitting match. Um, I enjoyed it myself, though. I think it was a great opener. What were your thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm pretty much with you. Like, um, it was a very, very good opener. Um, I think, like, the styles um, kind of, like... They mesh really well together. Like obviously, uh, Ultimate Dragon was working like like kind of like the underdog face, as it were, um, and kind of like trying to connect with like the kind of like high flying, like the faster offense that we've um, kind of well, that a lot of us kind of know him for. But then uh, you've got like Yuji Nagata, who's like the kind of like the heel in this situation, like the hired gun. Um, and I feel he played. Um, I wasn't too fond of the look. Like the gloves were a bit. Uh, but yeah, um, I know what you mean. <laughs> it was. Um, but yeah, like um, the fact that like he was just using like strikes, and he was he that the work on the arm was um, really really effective. Um, it did confuse me a little bit when he went for the um, the leg based submission after like doing all that work to the arm. But I think that's kind of um, it. Kind of made sense in hindsight, because obviously to slow slow a competitor down or kind of eliminate some of the 
kind of like the jumpier offense you take out of the legs. Um, so yeah, it's very logical. Um, it's put together really, really well. Um, I don't think it overstayed its welcome and it hyped up the crowd really well. Um, so I think it ticks all the boxes for an opener. Um, set night for quite a good night of action, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's a really good way of putting it, ticking all the boxes for an opener. It definitely did its job. Um, I think it's noticeable in the first minute or two. The crowd are nowhere near as vocal as they are towards the end of this contest. So it so so it did what it's supposed to do. It, it opened the show, got everyone fired up. There were some great moments in there as well. Um, Ultimate Dragon's moonsault looked fantastic. Mm. Um, the the stiffness and the gatter's kicks and some of the moves he was putting in again. I, I'm a big fan of that that style. Um, that that again looked good to me. One moment I wasn't overly fond of was when the Ultimate Dragon did the kind of handstand in the, in the, on the top turnbuckle in the corner spot and the gatter kind of just stood there and waited to be kicked. So that sort of took me out the moment a little bit. But on the whole, I, I, I really enjoyed this contest. I thought, like, as you said, it uh, it did the job as, as a good opener. And the gatter goes on and wins via submission with a, a Fujiwara armbar. And I mean, I'm a big fan of that move, so it's always nice seeing that busted out. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like, you just kind of got him, got Nagata over instantly. And I think the commentators did a good, really good job as well. Um, I think it was Mike Tanay who like said that um, Dragon had kind of been suffering with like the bone chips in his elbow. Yeah. So it kind of, and this was like just before, um, well, just as he was kind of starting that work on the elbow. So um, it really kind of played up to the audience at home. Like, oh, this isn't just him targeting a limb. It's because he's got a pre-existing injury. And that's why. Um, I thought that kind of, for viewers at home, like even like myself, 23 years on, kind of brought out a lot of sympathy for Ultimate Dragon and kind of wanted him to kind of fight back. And um, yeah, it really, they, I think it was just, um, the commentators were kind of a mixed bag throughout, but I think they did a really, really good job of this match, um, especially. Yeah, the commentary is something that I was, I was going to touch on a little bit later on, and, and we will come back to that again. But it's interesting you bring it up there because you effectively have four different voices working the show at different points throughout the broadcast. You have um, Tony Schiavone, who's the, who's the lead commentator, I suppose, the the play-by-play guy, for want of a better term. And I'm a I'm a big Schiavone fan. I mean, he was he was the main commentator on SummerSlam '89, which is the event that got me into wrestling in the first place when I had an old VHS tape when I was a child. So I kind of got a bit of a soft spot for Schiavone anyway. Heenan's always great. Heenan always makes me laugh. But Mike Tanay is I I think hugely underrated. He, he's so knowledgeable um, of wrestling from all over the world. Uh, his work when he was, so I suppose, in the Shivani role when he was working for TNA or Impact, um, I think is hugely underrated. And then, of course, we had Dusty Rhodes, who I find Dusty on commentary a real mixed bag. I think he's either hugely entertaining and funny, or you kind of think he, he's just rambling and, and sometimes comes across a little crazy. Um, what, what are your thoughts with regards to hearing Dusty on commentary? I'm, I'm assuming... With the conversations we've had previous, like you say, you've not seen much WCW. This would have been one of the first experiences of that potentially. Um, yeah, obviously, like um, I'm kind of familiar with um, like Dusty's kind of promo work, and it's kind of new seeing him on commentary here. But um, yeah, I think it's like hard to disagree with your kind of um, statement of like a mixed bag because, um, like you see here, um, well, he was like really good to start things off with, and he kind of worked well with like the three guys that he was with. But then, like, later on in the show when he was kind of just, like, really kind of excitable and kind of, he did, I felt he kind of went a bit overboard with it. And um, <laughs> yes. it was just kind of, I don't, 
like because obviously he has the knowledge of wrestling because he's been there and done it but I just don't feel like he kind of played his role too well at certain points but here um, and in, obviously in other spots I think that he kind of he, pl- he played his role well and I think having uh, guys like Tane and Shivani um, kind of really helped and uh, obviously Bobby Heenan as well kind of really helped um, cover up any flaws for the most part yeah yeah I can agree with that I mean we'll come to a Dusty losing his way a little bit on commentary a bit later on with a moment that genuinely had me sitting on my sofa laughing, belly laughing at what was coming out of his mouth. I thought it was, it was a, a memorable moment, but maybe not for all the right reasons. Um, after this opener, we had what I think was another e- excellent match, another match I really enjoyed, with the aforementioned Gado coming up against um, Chris Jericho, who was uh, wrestling under the Lionheart gimmick still from his Japan days. And coming down to the ring um, to an incredibly badly dubbed version of his entrance theme, the WWF entrance theme being played over the top. Um, how did you find this contest? Obviously, there's one very memorable moment where Y2J damn near kills himself. How did you find this? Um, I think it was kind of like slowing things down again after the like the opener and giving um, fans kind of like a bit of time to breathe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, as I said earlier, I think Gerda was kind of a bit out of his element in the singles role and um i think like jericho was kind of he was perfect he's he's a great wrestler and he always has been but kind of um and he really carried this match from an in-ring perspective but i think he was just kind of at this point um he was kind of like your standard kind of white meat kind of baby face and he didn't really um, like all those pieces to kind of put together to kind of get something that the audience could really invest in um which is a shame but yeah um it was good. Um, Mike Tanay again did really, really well. That kind of familiarising um, the audience um, to both guys. And he mentioned uh, Jericho's work in Japan. He mentioned Gedo's work. Um, and I literally, I actually have on my notes that just Jericho almost died. What the hell? Um, <laughs> but yeah, they were kind of. Um, but then even commentary were great at covering that up, and they were just like, "Oh, Gedo kind of predicted what he was going to do," um, rather than saying, "Oh, Jericho fell flat on his face." Um, and yeah, it was, it was perfectly fine. Um, the finishing sequence was good. Um, obviously, Gedo doing uh, trying to get a missile drop kick, and Jericho just swept his legs and uh, transitioned it quickly into the Lion Tamer. Um, again, like the uh, the opener, it didn't say it didn't oversay its welcome. It was perfect for its length. Um, I think Jericho got somewhat over with the win, um, and yeah, it was perfectly fine for what it was. Yeah, again, again, I I agree with everything you're saying. Um, Jericho is very much the bland you know uh, white meat baby face i suppose again for want of a better term there um but you, you listen to jericho talking in interviews about his wcw time and his you know he, i think he mentions it in one of his books it was around this this time period he was desperate to turn heel he couldn't see this this uh, baby face character going anywhere and eventually that turn did happen and it, it, his career just took off um again coming back to the match itself I, I enjoyed it. The opening exchange I thought was great. There was some nice, you know, nice hammerlock escape from Y2J. Some good, some good proper wrestling. I, I was actually sat watching wrestling, which which is what I want to see. Um, a couple of real nice, very you know, I suppose powerful power slams as daft as that may sound, but it was from Gado. A couple of real good, good quick spinning torqued power slams there, which was excellent. Um, but that moment where Jericho attempts, I think it was a Hurricane Rana, wasn't it, from the top rope, 
something yeah. something there's a bit of confusion there a bit of mistiming he just comes down straight on the back of his head on his neck and so on that was that was terrible that made me wince sat watching it um and i think that's kind of what's memorable for me from this match that moment is is kind of what sticks because it was such a all strief moment that, that that i saw if you know what i mean yeah yeah i was the same i kind of just like watching it at light and, um i think about half past ten uh, yesterday and I was perfectly silent and I just like anybody else was in bed and I'm downstairs watching it and I've I've seen them I've seen when Jericho lands and I'm like oh my god it's like <laughs> really kind of like I went a bit queasy and I was like oh that's not that is not nice and no. the fact that he just gets up and I was just like oh we're not be getting up after that I'll yeah. just be lay there for a bit but uh, he had a very yeah, very probably... close escape there didn't he something, something more horrific could have potentially happened I think so he's a lucky lucky boy but there we go um the next match is again. It's all continuing the the process of this event so far, going into match three of of entertaining contests. And I actually think entertaining probably doesn't do this match justice. I cannot throw enough compliments and uh, positive vibes towards this match. I think this is one of the best matches I've ever seen in WCW. Uh, as Rey Mysterio t- took on Eddie Guerrero. Um, just I, I can't explain how great this match is. I mean, you say this is one you've watched previously, but again, you watched back for for our recording. Um, what were your thoughts on this? I mean, like my my first note literally is why it just says why. Yeah, mine's pretty much the same. I, I remember watching this match like three years ago on like a DVD that my dad had brought. Okay, it was like one of the best of WCW ones, and um, I watched it and I was like. I don't think I could quite appreciate like how good it was from like a storytelling perspective. It was just, oh, look at the cool moves that they're doing. Mm. Um, and like watching it back, like with kind of like a new kind of, well, like more understanding of like storytelling, and, like in-ring psychology and that, and you could, it is damn near close to perfect, um, I think. And it was just, um, I think Eddie played his role of kind of like the bully in heel. Um, he was kind of um, like working on the back really well. Um, and he was kind of slowing things down, and I think that kind of really built up the investment for Ray. Um, the fact that he had his mask torn off, and um, he was like struggling to kind of find anything. Um, and I think you can just tell like how strong the chemistry was between them, and you can kind of tell that they are kind of friends because they they know each other so well. Um, again, um, I keep going about to like the commentary, but they they um, it's. It wasn't kind of as smooth as it was, but like they they were bringing up the fact that Ray had kind of fought in these types of matches before, and um, kind of kept the mask and um, kind of Mike Tenay brought back his history in uh, Mexico, and um, yeah, I think it was just really good. Um, the finish was um, really well done, like the splash pinfall onto um, Eddie, kind of got like the crowd went so loud when um, when that three was counting. It was just yeah. by like. It was just so surprising. Like, I was kind of expecting like a kind of like decisive finish, um, but yeah, I really, really, really enjoyed it. By far the best match of that card, I think. Oh yeah, without a doubt. I, I've got written here as well in front of me next to where it says "Why Match of the Night," it, and I, I don't think it's even close. This is head and shoulders above everything else we see on this card. Um, Eddie Guerrero's entrance was was superb. Nothing too spectacular. Nothing too clever. Just. Just the cocky, arrogant way he walks to the ring with the belt slung over his shoulders, the facial expressions. He was instantly disliked the guy. Um, the start of the match was very quick. Lots of lots of high spots, but not high spots 
for no reason. They, they, they made sense in the story they were telling. Um, some other moments as well, and there's an amazing springboard into a DDT by Rey Mysterio. That, that was incredible. Um, just so many great moments. I, I cannot stress enough. If, if people are looking for a match to put on and they've got a spare 20 minutes and they're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just flicking through the network or what should I put? Honestly, this week, if you watch one match, watch Rey Mysterio versus Eddie Guerrero from Halloween Havoc 1997. You will not be disappointed. It is absolutely superb. Um, this also had a bit of history to it behind the scenes, behind the curtain, so to speak, with um, Eric Bischoff and Rey Mysterio clashing a little bit about the whole mask versus title stipulation. Um, initially, from, from what I've heard from uh, Mr. Bischoff on interviews and what I've read elsewhere online, um, Eric wanted Ray to lose the match and lose his mask here, whereas Ray was blatantly refusing and said he didn't want to lose the mask. Um, Bischoff apparently went as far as to threaten Ray Mysterio with a breach of contract and potential legal issues if he didn't do as he was told. But the day of the contest, they came to they came to a compromise with what we inevitably saw on the show. But it's quite interesting to think that Ray Mysterio and Eric Bischoff are bickering backstage for God knows how long and starting to talk about breach of contract and other legal you know issues over someone taking a mask off. It's quite it's quite humorous to me looking back from you know twenty three years in the future from the show. Yeah, it's like hearing that kind of story now, and it's kind of quite shocking. But I think kind of Bischoff was—he must have been happy with what he got. So obviously, we didn't quite get the masks completely removed, and we we didn't have Ray lose, but we kind of we got a, a brief look at his face like throughout the match with um with obviously Eddie kind of tearing away at it and trying to rip it off. Um, yeah, and major props to Ray as well for kind of like sticking to his guns and kind of. Big, like even when threatened with potential legal action, he's like, no, 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 no. Um, I'm I'm going to do this my way. Um, so yeah, made major respect to him for that. And um, I don't think the match probably would have had the same impact if, well, it, it might have had the same impact with uh, obviously Ray losing his mask and who knows what he could have done if he did. But um, I'm glad that it ended how it did. Um, and I, I think the the uh, the post match with Eddie kind of beating up Ray and kind of. Um, really got more heat on him, and it, it it was perfect for what it was. Um, I don't think they needed to remove the match. It was just such a good match. Yeah, I mean the one the one possible complaint, I guess, and this is just from a selfish standpoint. When I see something this good, I want to see more of it. And this match, I think, could have gone longer, especially when you look at some of the the other matches and other uh, segments on the show that they could have found an extra four or five minutes for these guys. I think, but. The, the the 13, 14 minutes or whatever it was we got was so good. Uh, honestly, I can't recommend it enough to anyone listening out there. Please go back and watch this match. It's absolutely superb. So I suppose in true WCW fashion, Conrad, we've had a good opener, a good follow-up, an amazing third match. Things kind of take a little bit of a nosedive then, don't they? They do indeed, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, uh, we had... Um, Mean Gene Oakland um, shilling his WCW hotline, trying to get people to ring in and pay crazy money to to speak on the hotline or listen to his recorded messages. Um, we had a Hogan and Bischoff promo about, effectively about an unsafe working environment for Hollywood Hogan, and that they were trying to get him out of the cage match main event later in the show. And this would then 
um, this, this sort of additional story, I suppose, would rumble on through a great deal more of the pay-per-view after this, this, this promo from Hogan and Bischoff stating that they weren't, weren't happy with Sting coming down from the rafters and they wanted um, guarantees or Hogan would literally just go home and you wouldn't have a main event. Um, I find that quite interesting. It's a, it's a different way of, uh, a different way of, I suppose, putting an angle onto things throughout the pay-per-view. The thing I didn't enjoy was when Steve Mongo McMichael was wrestling in the next match against Alex Wright, who was brought in as a surprise by um, McMichael's wife, Deborah. The match itself I, I wasn't a fan of, but I also, again, we're coming back to the commentary. The, the match went six, seven minutes. It wasn't until literally on the finish that they mentioned anything that was going on in the ring. The whole of this match had Heenan, Shavani, and Dusty Rhodes talking about Hogan and whether he was going to be in the main event, the NWO, and, and so on. And the guys in the ring, granted, what they were putting on wasn't probably worth mentioning much, but the guys in the ring never got a mention. I mean, how, how did you find this next segment of the whole of the whole show? Um, yeah, I mean, like, um, I think we didn't really go over it, but we had the, um, just before Ray and Eddie, we had the kind of backstage thing with uh, Mean Gene, um, with like Deborah and uh, Steve McMichael kind oh, of yes, coming of course, in. Oh, yeah, that yeah good memory of, that, yeah. Um, and yeah, we kind of, that kind of took my interest out of it, because it was kind of, the only good bit about that promo was Mean Gene. Um, yes. <laughs> and yeah, but like the match was kind of, uh, my kind of view is commentary has to sell everything. And if they're not interested in the match, then why should we be interested in it? Exactly. Um, and I thought that was kind of really the case here. Like, I, I genuinely did not care. Um, like, even when Goldberg came out, and it was kind of clear then that this whole segment was just to get him over. Because, like, the the crowd were kind of, they were dead for a fair bit of the match. And um, it was only five minutes, then Goldberg came in. And, like, for, for well, through my eyes, obviously not being, like, overly familiar with, like, kind of like the nitros or whatever um and goldberg kind of just rocks up and kind of destroys everybody and alex Fry gets the win like that and it was kind of um okay cool goldberg's here but like why is he here um yeah and it was just yeah it's just there to get him over um it's a shame to but michael and um and Wright for kind of going out and wrestling for like, even short amount of time and kind of being overshadowed by everything else that was happening yeah, and the finish itself was an absolute mess, wasn't it? You had, yeah. um, from what I can, from watching it back today, I, I believe the referee was supposed to be distracted by Deborah, and that's when Goldberg would come in the ring, spear Mongo, um, throw Alex right on top, and so on. Um, but there were so many timing issues. Deborah didn't get up on the apron, and when she did, the ref was then in a different corner and was effectively stood right next to Goldberg at one stage. There's no way he could have not seen him. Um, he turned round at one stage, the referee, when Goldberg was in mid-move. Uh, and then Deborah got off the apron, so there's no need for the referee to be involved with her. But yet he's still carrying on talking to her when she's walking away to try and give the guys behind him time to finish what they were doing. And again, the ref then turns around a bit early and sees what's happening, but obviously has to try and hide this because it would ruin the planned finish. It was just an absolute mess. And it's just... It, to, me, to me, it's just overbooked. There's too much going on. And especially when you've got a guy like um, Steve McMichael in there, who's not the most experienced or, or 
you know, with all due respect, he'll probably admit this himself, not the most talented. And then you've got someone like Deborah who, again, I suppose you put her in the same bracket, maybe not as experienced as some of the others and maybe not as um, as prepared for this involvement. It's just an absolute mess, isn't it? Yeah, it's really kind of like a shame, but I kind of get why they kind of did it. They um, Obviously, following Ray and Eddie, like, it's probably just because they knew that they were following Ray and Eddie and they kind of knew that it was going to be really, really good. Um, so they kind of just like, oh, you know what, we'll kind of half-ass it and it'll be a mess. Um, but then that kind of, the Goldberg stuff will kind of make up for it and they will hype the crowd up after like five minutes of kind of kind of respite for them after being like really loud for um, the Cruiserweight match, which to be fair, we kind of knew that it wasn't going to be topped. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think like card placement was kind of the issue but um yeah it was just it's a shame because like if it was a bit more coordinated it probably would have been a bit better but um yeah it's just a shame yeah it is it is um again the uh, I, i'm not i'm not a massive mongo fan um and it, it again it was just an absolute mess at the end it was a real shame um but then but again like you said it was it was a relatively short match so perhaps it served its purpose from that standpoint, what was not in any way, shape or form, in my opinion, short enough, was the following match. We had Disco Inferno taking on Jacqueline. Um, I'll, I'll get your thoughts on this before before I put forward my opinion. How did you find how did you find this contest? And I, I say contest very loosely. No, oh, this is just uh, painfully bad to watch. Like it was. Um kind of laughable these that this goes kind of kept the old oh, women's wrestling's not as good mentality like 20 years on um <laughs> and he's kind of not quite getting the, the reception he was kind of hoping for with that um but like i mean i'm a fan of intergender wrestling when it's done kind of right um but this was kind this is just at its absolute worst um i feel that kind of if they cut this match in half and they didn't go for 10 minutes and they went for like five, six minutes, I thought they could have had the same effect. Yeah, I, I, yes, that, that's, that's spot on. I think that's that's a really good um, conclusion for this. I mean, it, it went far too long and over half of it, I think, uh, I haven't timed it, but I believe it would be over half of it, was literally Disco Inferno going to the outside of the ring, having a little walk around, then a little bit of a run around, then getting back in and going back out again. Um, whilst this was happening, there was more talk of Hogan, more talk of what was going to happen in the main event. Whilst you had people in the ring who were who were actually trying to perform, trying to trying to entertain, maybe not succeeding, but at least they were trying. Um, it just it just wasn't. I just don't see the purpose at all. Um, at one stage, Dusty Road states this is hard to watch, and I just sort of chuckled to myself, thinking, "Yeah, Dusty, you're spot on there." Um, one of the the issues with this whole scenario that maybe forced it onto the card was that um, Disco didn't want to lose to Jacqueline at a previous occasion, um, and he ended up basically being sent home by Eric Bischoff for for refusing to, um, and almost Bischoff trying to sort of put his foot down and say, "Well, I'm in charge. This is the way it is." Uh, he Disco argued about the finish, didn't want to lose to Jacqueline on an episode of Nitro, I believe. Um, so he got sent home, whether that was fired, suspended, whatever. Um, eventually, they negotiated a return for him, but one of the stipulations was he had to lose to Jacqueline, but on this occasion, it was going to be on pay-per-view. 
almost to, I suppose, save face for letting him come back, potentially. This Bischoff demanded this from, from Disco Inferno. And you ended up with what we've got here. Um, there was also issues with regards to he wasn't allowed to strike, punch, kick Jacqueline because of certain regulations in that area, which made it very limited as to what they could do. Um, but again, it baffles me how you can look at the first three matches of this event and then these next two. And it's it's the same company and it's the same show. It's it's, it's night and day, isn't it? It's, it's complete contrast, Conrad. Yes, um, yeah, I don't think I can put it better than night and day. But um, yeah, it's just kind of it was so weird and like the I, I like obviously Jacqueline kind of eventually winning was cool, but like the commentators again, like they were so good in the first three matches, and then here it was oh Disco's getting beat up by a girl, ha 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 ha, and even though Jacqueline kind of eventually kind of well Bisco got his comeuppance and it was kind of I guess with the situation that you've kind of explained with um with Disco kind of refusing to lose, I guess that was kind of commentary might have been told to kind of like bury him as much as possible. Like, oh when he goes home he's not gonna be able to like do this, that and the other because he's getting beat up by a girl. But I think they kind of damaged Jacqueline as well for kind of being a badass and the commentators are saying, Oh but she's a girl, she shouldn't be doing this. And she's Which notorious as well, isn't she? I mean, she, she's notorious in the business as well. The stories you hear from various people of being a genuine badass as well, as in tougher than majority of the men. She, she's got this, this reputation of being a, a real, real hard nut. So to me, when you've got somebody who has that kind of aura, that kind of reputation, th- there's no issue with getting beat there, regardless of gender. I just think, I've, again, we've got, I suppose we've got to remember it's 1997. It's a different time. Yeah. Nowadays... As you said, intergender wrestling when it's done properly, uh, and so on, it, it it can be it can be a good watch. But this is 1997. It's it, it is very different to today's world with regards to that kind of intergender wrestling role, I suppose. Yeah, I think that was kind of where I kind of struggled because obviously, like um, even when I first started watching wrestling in like 2011, 2012 ish. And I was always kind of, I was always TNA. I, was, I always watched TNA and they were kind of, even then, like the women's division was always kind of seen as like a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of always been used to kind of women's wrestling and kind of like women's wrestlers kind of being equal to the guys. Um, so kind of, that probably put me out of it a bit more. But like if I was kind of in 97 or like maybe kind of like a few years after, like not 20 years on, then I probably kind of would have appreciated, like, well, probably understood why they kind of um, went the way they did with it. But yeah, it's just it was just a weird one. It's a shame, like, you kind of see the company at its best in the first three matches, and here it's just along with like the match before, and it's just it's worst, I think. Yeah, and again, this is this is very much WCW in in one little bubble here for people to view you have the heights of the first few matches and especially eddie versus ray and then literally straight afterwards you have this nonsense and then you have the heights of mike Tanay's commentary um, calling moves that potentially some of the other commentators may not know the history of the guys from japan and so on and then you have the commentary banging on about hogan the nwo the main event over the top of a match and a half and then making jokes about the fact that Disco's got to wrestle a woman. It's it's so it's such a contradiction to what we we started the event with. It's it's really baffling to me how how it can be that 
contradictory and and not to sort of find some middle ground maybe to to carry over the the lesser points of the event um the next match it kind of kind of picked up a little bit there didn't it the next match I mean, when you got guys like kurt henning and rick flair in the ring regardless of how old flair may have been at this stage i believe he was in his late 40s it it's going to be an improvement on mongo mike on disco inferno no matter what isn't it yeah absolutely yeah i mean how did you find uh how did you find this contest i mean were you aware of the the story going in the context as to as to why this match was happening um, other than like the robe stuff, um, which was kind of like right there in front of me, so it kind of been a, would have been a bit weird of me if I didn't notice. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, other than that, I didn't wasn't really familiar with the story. Um, but it okay. was I mean, a good basically the the rough scenario, a rough timeline here is um, we had Arn Anderson retiring, giving Kurt Henning his spot in the Horseman. They went up against the NWO in a War Games match. Um, Henning then turned his back on the Horseman and joined the NWO. And it kind of all runs together over months and potentially going on into a year, whatever, however long it was. I mean, the timeline I'd have to look up, but this is just a rough, rough gauge of the whole NWO, Horseman, WCW theme that was running along at that time. And we ended up here with Flair going up against Henning. Um, and... and in the build-up, obviously, Henning stole his robe and all, all this sort of stuff. I got a little kick out of seeing Henning come to the ring with a robe with the sleeves cut off, I must admit. I must admit that did make me chuckle. Um, Flair's entrance, as simple as it was, got over to me how angry and fired up he was about the scenario. His music had barely started, and he came running down the aisleway and attacked Kurt Henning without the usual pomp and circumstance and strutting around and... You know, puffing his chest out and uh, and the usual flair, um, spectacular, I guess. Literally straight to business. And I thought that set the tone early on. How did how did you find this match? Yeah, I think um, agreed with you about like the flair entrance. And I was kind of glad that he did kind of do some of the like the strutting and stuff and the confidence when he uh, when they were outside and flair was really like, like chopping and heading around. Which, um, by the way, like uh, I think we all kind of know how good uh, Koenig was and we, like we saw it here with the selling the just like a chop. Oh yes, the first chop that flair hits and he went absolutely went flying. It was, um, <laughs> yeah. and it was yeah, it was kind of it was good. Um, but I kind of um, the finish was good. Um, the kind of the stomping uh, from the stomping the belt was a bit weird and kind of it, it was it was fun for what it was like the DQ finish kind of left a lot kind of to be desired I suppose but it was it was good for what it was like the actual in ring stuff was was more than okay yeah yeah I mean it was again you had a DQ finish so it wasn't a clean finish but it, it to me it was a good brawl on the outside for a while. The uh, the anger and the emotion Flair showed, I thought, was was great. It was a different, it was a different, different sort of character to Flair, I guess. He's still obviously Ric Flair doing Ric Flair, but the anger and the passion and so on he was showing, and the hatred towards Henning in this spot where effectively he was wrestling as the babyface, it, it is, you know, to me it was a little bit of a breath of fresh air because you don't often see Flair in that that way. Um, the crowd popped huge when Flair put the robe on in the middle of the match with no sleeves and, and so on, which made me chuckle. Just putting a robe on and you got that kind of reaction. Um, yet again, 
we had more Hulk Hogan talk from the commentary again. I understand they're trying to sell the story, but for crying out loud, this match was only 12, 13 minutes long. Can we not shut up about Hogan just for a moment? You've got Ric Flair versus Kurt Henning in the ring with a big story behind them. But no, we had to carry on about talking about Hogan some more. Um, ultimately, I, I, I enjoyed this. It's a shame we didn't get a clean finish. But again, I think this is all building to later dates. This is building to future shows, and this kind of helps develop the storyline further to where they want to go. This is more like a stop along the way, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think the um, the DQ kind of said, like, kind of screened out to me, oh, we're going to do more of this because um, it wasn't kind of a clean finish, and obviously Flair got the rope and put the rope back on, but I feel that there's still kind of like unfinished business for um, both of them, with like Flair kind of letting his anger get the better of him and kind of getting disqualified. Well, yeah, losing via disqualification. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. Um, the, well, before the next match, we had JJ Dillon coming out, um, declaring that the Hogan match, yes, more mention of Hogan, the Hogan match against Piper in the main event in the cage will definitely happen. Um, Eric Bischoff, the me- what, member or potential leader, I suppose, of the NWO, they all refer to him as boss, don't they? Um came out and had this argument with J.J. Dillon. J.J. brings out a document or a letter of some description um, explaining that it's been um, notarized or notified or however he worded it and stating that this this is going to happen, waving this bit of paper around. We got no explanation as what that paper was or what was on that paper, but Bischoff had a look and he seemed to be suitably agitated in that it was going to make the main event actually occur. The commentators then obviously got hold of this bit of paper and again explains, yeah, the match is going to happen without actually letting us know what was on this bit of paper. Typical WCW style there, I suppose, telling half a story or <laughs> not concluding what we need to know. Um, and that led us into Scott Hall, who was accompanied here by X-Pac, uh, Six, Sean Maltman, whichever way you want to refer to him as, um, up against Lex Luger. We had Larry Zbysko as the special guest referee. Uh, how did you find this? I mean, it was fine. It was kind of um, a perfectly fine big guy battle, and kind of like the, the strength exchanges with like the knuckle, will start off as a knuckle lock into kind of like going back and forth. But that like, was cool. Um, I didn't really take many much more um, like notes wise, um, other than like the finish. I feel the kind of like the first finish kind of protected Luger because um, obviously there was interference, which led to uh, Scott Hall getting the win. But then after it was kind of like overturned and I kind of knew then, like even like not knowing the results um, was kind of, as soon as they started it again, you're like, oh, you, okay, Lex Luger's absolutely winning this because that's what happens, I suppose. That's like general rule of thumb. If the match gets restarted and the babyface is lost and the baby, well, the quote unquote babyface um, wins when it's restarted and kind of yeah. gets the, the last laugh. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's per- perfectly fine for uh, for what it was. So the the um, I'm kind of glad that when they restarted, it didn't go on for too long, uh, and kind of like being cut off just as the referee um, would just as uh, just as Larry uh, Larry Zabisco kind of called for the bell, and it kind of all kicked off then, and it kind of carried on like the chaos that we kind of um, that we saw like at the end of the uh, the flare and um, Hennig match as well. So it kind of a nice little continuation, and um, again, it didn't go on for too long. It's only 13 minutes long, which is 
not too bad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very much um, a, a Lex Luger match of this time, I think. He was very very one-dimensional at this stage in his career. Um, he knew what he did, and that's what he stuck to. He didn't really deviate from that in many contests at all, really. Um, the big story here was Zabisco as the ref. Um, this was building, again, towards you know uh, events and matches at a later date. We do end up with Zabisco versus Bischoff down the line. Um it's it's more again a stepping stone to where they want to go as opposed to the conclusion on this event. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Scott Hall. I think he's fantastic. Again, Luger. I think he's he is what he is. You know what you're getting. It ain't going to be great, but it ain't absolutely dreadful either. It's a very slow paced Lex Luger style match. Um, and again, I suppose we're built, just building towards towards Starcade and Zabisco yelling, "Let me look on the monitor. Let me look on the screen." Let me see what's happened to, you know, when he believes that Six has interfered in the finish to restart the match. Actually made me chuckle a little bit with all the VAR nonsense we've got going on in this country with, with the football at the moment and video replays. But then at the same time, if that option's available for a referee, if they just have to ask in the world of professional wrestling, why don't more do it? <laughs> you think how many finishes uh, that, that could have been cleaned up just by looking at the monitor, eh? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, especially like in the world where kind of DQ all like false finishes and whatever, and there's always kind of something. Um, and I feel like it, we should really bring that back. Yeah. Um, like in modern wrestling. Yeah, it was it was something different, but I suppose at the same time it's very odd because it's not it's not used often. If one ref can do it, I don't see why the others cannot. But there we go. That's again the strange world of WCW, I suppose. Um, that took us into then, I suppose, our two. Big stipulation matches are two main events, I guess, closing the show. We had the NWO's Macho Man Randy Savage coming up against Diamond Dallas Page in a Las Vegas sudden death match, which is effectively just a, a, another name for a last man standing match. There was no pinfalls, no DQs, no submissions, etc., etc. The wrestler who was on the deck, on the floor has to get to his feet by the 10 count, all the matches over. So last man standing rules. I'm in previous shows, may even with, with South Conrad, my friend, I've been quite vocal in not enjoying last man standing stipulations. Um, but this one, I actually I actually found was okay. I, I, I enjoyed this more than I have many more recent last man standing matches. What were your thoughts? Um, yeah, I think I absolutely... Um pretty much with you on that that kind of, um after kind of feeling that it was a bit slow um in like the matches following uh ray and eddie and it was kind of this kind of really picked up the pace and just look um i think the match went for about 18 minutes and we got to the end and i was kind of like oh that's that, that really flew by mm, yeah, uh, um i think um heenan put over like macho man's kind of career on uh commentary really really well um, and kind of really hyped him up, and uh, um, I like I like the fact that they kind of took it all over and they used the set and they were kind of like kicking the uh, the tombstones about and um, they got slammed about. Well, uh, I think it was Macho um, Man got slammed onto the um, the casket thing that they had at the top. Oh yeah, the coffin um, at the top. Yeah, that was made of um, uh, polystyrene. <laughs> And they made a big deal. Made a big deal out of that. Like, oh, it's, it's completely dust now. Um, 
and the work done onto kind of uh, Paige's ribs was really, really well done. Um, kind of really stopped him from stringing a lot of um, like tangible offense together. And um, the uh, Miss Elizabeth kind of um, interference, like the um, the the glass plate thing. Yeah, the sort of tray um, thing that she had, like, wherever um, it was. Yeah, and then uh, kind of like her being neutralised by um, Kimberly Page was. Uh, um, the commentary kind of got really excited and kind of like it's a cat fight and it kind of took away from things for me a little bit. But yeah, but I think that's again, very much of the time uh, again, isn't it? 1997 yeah. on the other channel, um, which the WWF at this stage were running uh, October 97, I believe was the first Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. Um, well, sorry, Hell in a Cell match was on the other channel. Just to give you a rough idea, so we had Taker versus Sean and Kane's debut in that. So it was very much a thing of the time with Jerry Lawler would be shouting catfight and puppies and so on. It doesn't age well, does it, mate? It doesn't age well at all. It really doesn't, but it kind of... It was kind of, like, cleared up pretty quick. Um, I was a bit confused about the fake sting that kind of came out and attacked um, DDP, but um, I thought that's kind of me kind of not being kind of familiar with the ongoing kind of narratives because, obviously, with the main event, which we'll speak about in a second, we saw a lot of sting sort of stings um, and but yeah this was good um the stipulation really worked well i like the fact that they kind of took it from outside of the ring um which is like didn't really get that in a lot of um last man sandy matches these days it's kind of just oh here's a table here's a chair and we're going to throw these about but um yeah they put it together a really good match um ddp sold the ribs really well um macho man was really good in the targeting of the ribs and like the elbow drop kind of perfect finisher to do that um and yeah it was really well put together, and um, for like a semi-main event, was it was pretty good. Uh, Twenty minutes is just how long it should be, I think. Yeah, yeah. Again, like I said, I, I enjoyed this despite the stipulation. I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan, like I said, um, of certain stipulations that kind of take away the option of a pinfall, so you don't get the suspense of the uh, a big move and then a one-two shoulder up. To me counting to nine and then they stand up you almost lose that that level of excitement from the kick out um it's just a little thing that for me when i'm watching these matches these last one standing matches throughout the years and there's been so many of them now that's kind of how it comes across to me watching i know people i know there are other people who absolutely adore that stipulation um they they like the 10 count very sort of boxing orientated i guess but to me, I'd rather have people kicking out of a, of a pinfall attempt as opposed to have to get to their feet. But in this match, I think it worked very, very well. As you said, they they put it together really, really well. Um, I'm not going to lie, by this stage, I'd heard the NWO theme, which I love, by the way, the NWO entrance theme. We'd heard the NWO entrance theme so much, I was kind of bloody sick of it. Um, Dust, like you said, loses it on the commentary at one stage, uh, literally laughing his head off about he waffle-legged him or something he shouted a few times when when Savage took a blow to the head with, with maybe one of those uh, tombstones from the, the entrance way, which again is a big big part of why I love Halloween Havoc is the stage sets, the entrance ways, the pumpkins and, and so on. They've really sort of, throughout the years, have always done great stuff with that and I hope when NXT bring back Halloween Havoc this month that they try to do something similar. Um, Elizabeth's interactions, Kimberly coming in. I, I, I can't, I can't disagree with anything you said. Though I, I find this a really, really enjoyable match. Um, 
considering that I don't normally enjoy this this stipulation. And yes, of course, as you mentioned, it pops the first of the fake stings to interfere, which apparently we get told later on looks like he had Hogan's boots on, so it might have been Hogan interfering, which is an odd thing to do if you're not actually going to reveal his face and never actually clear it up properly. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a, it's a weird one, but it was, it's kind of, it's perfectly fine, I guess. It was, um, it was just, I don't know, it was a good match, but some of the stuff was a bit confusing, yeah. to say the least. Um, then to close the show, we have, again, one stipulation match with Savage and Paige there that I enjoyed. Another stipulation match that, again, is so WCW that it, it, it could almost... It, it, it's literally WCW in a bubble. It's two... Um, it's, it's an incredible undercard. You've had some wonderful moments on the undercard. And then you've got two aging guys on top, punching and kicking each other through 13 minutes of nonsense in a cage. It, 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 I was not a big fan of this, but WCW at the time was famous for being stacked undercard terrible main events how did you find this this match yourself oh this is just <laughs> it really it bombed it was not for them to watch it was literally most of it that i was i was i kind of lost attention i kind of had to go and rewatch it because i lost interest quite quickly and it wasn't even it that was long just... was it to, to sort of let yeah. that happen it was <laughs> so, uh, 13 minutes long um, yeah. Well, thereabouts. It was just, it was literally Hogan climbed up and then he climbed down again and then he climbed up again and then they sat on the top of the cage for a little bit. Um, and the only good thing about that was how well it was shot, um, like yeah. kind of like the distance kind of from above. It did, um, and it really kind of showed how high they, high it was. Um, the stings on the outside was just again, why are they there? Um, I guess it's kind of like the mind games, as I guess, um, and. Uh, Randy Savage coming in and it was just it was so overbooked and it really took away from the um, really wanted it would have been so much better if they didn't do half the stuff that they did like say yeah. if they entered the ring around 99% of it outside or like on the cage in some way and um, it was just a shame because I think I think it could have been so much more but it was just bad and I don't think I can there's not many redeeming qualities. No, no, I agree. Uh, you, you had... Uh, the first thing that stands out to me, obviously, is how big that cage was. It was huge. Um, maybe they'd been... Insp- and obviously, it wasn't set on the ring itself. It was set on the floor outside, giving a bit of a, a walkway around. Um, maybe partially inspired by the first Hell in a Cell that we just seen on Bad Blood on the other channel. Who knows? But... Um, it was a massive, massive cage, but also poten- potentially the wobbliest, most unstable steel cage I've ever seen. It was rickety all over the place. Um, seeing a, a, a guy the size of Hogan at the top of this gigantic cage and it's swaying all over the place was an incredible visual. But that was probably the only plus point from this match. Um, I mean, the first question I suppose you get when you're watching this back is, how exactly do you win? Because there's no ref in the ring. When they start the match, there's Piper, there's Hogan, there's no ref in the ring. So I'm assuming there's no pinfalls, no submissions, and so on. 
because there's no ref in the ring. So, again, BCW, typical WCW, this isn't fully explained. Um, so I'm assuming then that you leave the cage to win. But then they both do leave the cage. Now, WCW tried to explain this away as they both left at exactly the same time. But it was so apparent Hogan left first. So the match could have ended there after three minutes. But then, later on, they bring a ref into the ring. And all of a sudden, the ref is then counting pinfalls. And obviously the finish was Piper with the the sleeper to, to, to win there. The ref had to call. So why wasn't the ref in the ring in the beginning, if that was the case? Or it just, again, typical WCW just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, we have five or six different fake stings turning up all over the place. Uh, again, like you said, it, it is because they're building towards Starcade and Sting, Hogan, um, and Sting keeps popping up all over the place and is it, it, messing with Hogan. So that makes sense of what you've explained there. That's correct. But again, it's just ridiculous because they just stood there doing nothing. Um, yeah, um... Yeah, apparently there was um, one of the fake stings that was actually a fan, and uh, they kind of that messed it up even more. And it's kind of it was very much all over the place, and it was just not fun yeah, at all. Yeah, the fan, the fan at the end who scaled the cage, um, and he wasn't dressed in the same way as the other fake stings. The other fake stings had the whole garb, the jacket, the bat, the hair, everything. This guy literally had a bit of face paint and a t-shirt. Um, he climbed the cage, jumped in, got involved. Now, according to Eric Bischoff, that wasn't part of the show. That was genuinely a fan climbing into the ring and getting involved. Um, apparently, Hogan and Savage decided to run with this, and that's why they grabbed hold of the fan. Hogan, you can see, is quite obviously throwing working punches, because, I mean, let's be honest, Hogan's punches were never the most convincing anyway. Hogan's obviously throwing working punches towards this, this fan that Eric Bischoff declares was not part of the show. Um, but you can then see Savage is, is, is quite aggressive. Savage is very much wanting to kick this, this young man on the ground and attack him, and then other people come in and try and drag him out. When I saw how, off, how much this guy was on camera and how much Hogan was obviously throwing working punches, I thought, OK, this is part of the show. But then you look at Savage and the other guys, you sort of think, well, maybe Bischoff is telling the truth there, and that wasn't part of the show. Um, that's 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 a concern for me <laughs> at that point. Um, but it was just an absolute, again, a, a mess. It made no sense from start to finish. I mean, it's the main event of one of their biggest pay-per-views of the year, and it's non-title. It just makes absolutely no sense, and it's typical WCW, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just, I don't know how they could have, I don't know how they messed it up that bad because you know how good Hogan was and you know how good Piper was and it's just oh it's just not it's no. really really not enjoyable to watch I can't imagine like being that per like someone that paid to be there and kind of oh we got uh, we've got oh we got Hulk Hogan versus Roddy Piper in the main event wow uh, let's go and see that and then you get a really bad finish from a really bad match that was really over it's not even for the belt and it's just yeah. Oh, there's, there's poor people that were sat like front row. I, I hope Ray and Eddie was worth it because it was like the first three matches. I really hope they were worth it because I, I would have left if um, like in that main event. And that was just it was bad. Yeah, and I, it's that thing again, isn't it? I suppose you're getting Piper versus Hogan in a cage, and to, to wrestling fans, it would be like, oh wow, that's incredible. But this is 
1997 Roddy Piper, 1997 Hulk Hogan. This is not 1985 Piper and Hogan. So I suppose the differences there are, are already apparent. But you can still provide something of more quality than this. Um, and then, of course, to tease it all so long that it might not even happen when they're already in the arena probably didn't help. Um, but no, it was an absolute mess, and the show goes off air with everyone scrapping and brawling, and and, and that was that. And also you sat there and you go, oh, right, so it's finished then. Okay. So a typical WCW fashion, we had a wonderful undercard with some brilliant moments, some undercard moments that were absolute dross, an excellent Savage versus Diamond Dallas Page match, which them two did create some magic together on the various occasions they wrestled. And then the typical WCU from that era main event, which absolutely stank the building out. Um, Comrade, do you have anything more to add to Halloween Havoc 97? Any other thoughts? Um, I was just going to say, like, um, I thought that, uh, as you said, like, they hyped it up throughout the show. And I thought that was kind of to their detriment, I guess, because you have, like, all this hype of, like, oh, is it, go- actually, uh, is it actually going to happen? Like, is Hogan... Um, is Hogan going to show up even though this document's been notarized and he's been told it's going to happen? Like, and then you get there and it's I didn't I don't feel that they kind of even tried to kind of really live up to those expectations because they knew that one way or another they were going to like under deliver quite a bit because there was so much anticipation heading into it and there's not many matches that kind of really deliver um, with such expectations there. But um, it was a good show. Shame about the main event and some bits on the undercard, but. Um, so I'd say it's a one match or two match card, and that's I think that's perfectly fine. Yeah, considering how good those two matches were. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I enjoyed I enjoyed watching the whole thing back, even the bad moments because they were so bad. They were almost entertaining because they were so terrible. You couldn't look away. Um, the main event was not one of those. That was just dreadful. That was just absolute dross. Um, I enjoyed Henning Flair. Um, Luger, Scott Hall was what it was. It was quite slow and static, but it was what it was. And then we had the wonderful moments from Mysterio and Guerrero and a couple of other matches before that were quite entertaining as well. I think overall, Halloween Havoc 1997, I'd give it maybe a B- Um, if you didn't have Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio on the card, I think you're dropping down quite a way, but that one match, I think, drags it up to potentially a B-minus grade. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I'd probably say, um, yeah, if it, either like a, a, just like a normal B, or mate, yeah, B-minus, I don't think I can put it higher than that, because the, the main event, and uh, the main event especially, was just bad, and it kind of stops you from putting it anywhere any higher. Um, I think the main event delivered and they kind of cut the bad stuff in half in terms of like match length and we just had like um, so like five minutes of uh, Jacqueline against um, Disco and um, and kind of um, like three minutes say for Alex Wright and uh, Steve McMichael and it probably could have been a B plus show um, and chuck all that spare time to Eddie and Ray Exactly, and I think but if they would have done that, then it very well could have been, like, the whole the show as a whole could have looked, uh, been looked back on as kind of, it was really, really good and, like, one of the best that WCW has seen. Yeah, yeah, excellent. I mean, that's a really good... Uh... A really good point to leave that on. I think you, I think no one can summarise it better than how you've just put it there, my friend. 
Uh, comrade, if you would please, can you let everyone know whereabouts they can find you on the socials, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, um, your website and so on? Um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so my Twitter is uh, at El Compacto Noop. Um, that's uh, E L C O M P A C T O N E W T. Um, you can follow my website, Chops Kicks and Nearfalls, um, at CK Nearfalls on Twitter and Facebook. Um, Chops Kicks and Nearfalls dot com is where you can find um, myself and kind of a lot of other really talented writers and podcasters. Um, and yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, so thank you, Sai, for having me back on. This is really fun. No, 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 no. I, I, no need to thank me, sir. No need to thank me. I enjoy having you on. I enjoy talking wrestling with anyone. Someone of, of your intelligence and um, obvious knowledge of, of of this crazy world that we enjoy it is always great fun for me to talk to. So I'll have you back on again and again and again, if you're willing. There's plenty of old WCW pay-per-views out there that will entertain and frustrate you in equal measures that we can look back on my friend that sounds like a plan i'm more than happy to come back on again mate excellent stuff thank you very much for your time i'll let you get off speak to you again soon okay yeah speak to you again soon mate this is some thank you so much again like this is a lot of fun no problem really thank you. cheers yeah, cheers mate